Well, hey, good morning to you, Grace. It is good to see you this morning. I hope you brought your Bibles today because we are going to read them all, read the entire thing. So turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. We will end up in Revelation 22 today, I promise you. We are beginning a new series entitled The Beginning and the Ending, and it is all about the beginning of the universe and the way that it is all going to end. How did it all start, and how will it all be concluded? And we start in a place what's familiar to us, one of the dominating themes of the 20th century that now has moved into the 21st century is our preoccupation with space. And there's a reason that we have had a preoccupation with space. But of course, you know all the guys, good old Jeff Bezos, the, the CEO of Amazon, he flies his Blue Origin thing to, you know, to outer space. And in his first trip, he took himself And he took the youngest person to ever fly into space, an 18-year-old. He took the oldest person in space, which is an 82-year-old. But there weren't a lot of astronauts. You don't need astronauts anymore. You just press a button and you just go. Of course, then there's Richard Branson. Richard Branson, he has Virgin Galantic along with Virgin Hotels and Virgin Mobile and Virgin Airlines and Virgin Burritos. Um, He has Virgin Galactic, and you can take a ride on Virgin Galactic's Spaceship Two for $450,000, but you can never leave out Elon, Elon Musk, because this guy, he's got rockets. His SpaceX rockets can get into orbital outer space. The other two guys, they're just playing around. This guy can get into outer space. He already has three people that have paid him $55 million each to get to them to the International Space Station. It's like toys. These rich guys have these toys to get into outer space. But for them, it is just playing around, and for them, it is just fun. But humanity, mankind, has spent billions of dollars in outer space. Just recently, we landed on Mars. We now have cameras on Mars. We have video of Mars. We have the ability to pick up little anything that we want on Mars. We're trying to get the pictures of the little green men on Mars. We just haven't gotten them quite yet. They're just right around the corner, I'm sure, because that is the whole point. The whole point of us being in outer space is for us to find life out there. That's the goal. We need to find life because maybe... That life out there might help us understand our life here. If, if, if they are out there, then maybe they can tell us how our life started here. In 1990, Hubble, this is Hubble Telescope. In 1990, Hubble Telescope was, was launched into space, and it has returned photos like this. These images are, have been given the name, the Pillars of Creation. That's the, that's the image here. That's the title of these, of these images, the Pillars of Creation. And that's because the purpose of us being in outer space is to find the origins of Earth. That's the goal. That's the purpose. And in a really interesting article about this image, and, 
and about Hubble telescope uh, in, in itself, it gives us even more clarity as to why we are in space. This photograph, the one that I just showed you, also revealed Hubble's larger power, it says, as a time machine. In astronomy, the further away things are, the older they are, because light from faraway places takes a very long time to travel to Earth. And that means that this Hubble deep field is not only a snapshot of space, it also contains the history of our universe. That is why we are in outer space. That is why we are going there, because we desperately want to know how we got here. We, we desperately want to know why we are here. And so, the whole extraterrestrial purpose of ourselves is to answer these questions, to find the origins, how it all began. How did it start? How, 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 how did we get here in the beginning? And now, we spend another kazabillions, is that even a word, a kazabillion? Of dollars on the latest one. This is the James Webb Space Telescope. You're probably familiar with this one because this one just got launched last month. This is the biggest foray that the world has ever made into space telescopes. It is a hundred times stronger than Hubble Telescope, and the goal is that we can see a hundred times more little green men when we finally do find them somewhere around the corner. Because the hope is if we can just see far enough we're eventually going to understand how it all began. We're eventually going to understand where we came from. And so let's go find those little green men because if we can find life out there, maybe they can tell us how we started here. Maybe they, can, maybe they have solutions to the problems that, that we have. Well, there are two basic views to this question on how we all began and where this all started. It is either evolution or creation. All other views of origins of the universe come from either one of these two. When I say evolution, I mean the premise being that the universe was formed slowly through mutation and adaption over billions of years. And the earth ultimately formed, and over millions of years, various stages of advanced life resulted, uh, culminating to where we are today. But we're not done yet. We are still evolving. In a billion years from now, things will be better than they are now, today. And by creation, I mean God, who in six 24-hour days supernaturally created the entire universe, climaxing on the sixth day with the supernatural creation of human beings. And then on the seventh day, God rested, which makes your Sunday naps holy, by the way, but that's another sermon for another day. <laughs> and so every single view of the origin of the universe comes from one of these two. And both of these major schools of thought come from the exact same premise. And that premise is faith. Faith. The writer of Hebrews describes it like this. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. I mean, does that make sense what that's saying? By faith, we understand that the worlds, everything that we see, the sun, the moon, the stars, Mars. They're prepared by God's spoken word. God said it, 
and then there it was. So that what is seen, the sun, the moon, the stars, Mars, what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. It wasn't made out of things. It was made from the word of God. By faith, we believe that. Now, as far as evolution is concerned, all you need to do is take the words, the word of God out, take that out, and instead replace it with, by chance, an extended period of time, and you have the premise of evolutionary theory. Here it is. By faith, we understand that the world is prepared by chance, an extended period of time, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Like I said, both views come from the same premise. That premise is faith. Both are religious views. Now, I do understand that those of you who are skeptics or those of you who have friends who are skeptics or those of you who have uh, evolutionary friends or you might uh, kind of side on the evolutionary side, you'd say, no, 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 no. It's not a religious view. It's not a, a view of faith. You would say we have science on our side. We have, we have science on our side that, that evolution is a fact. But of course, you already know that evolution cannot be a fact. It can never be a fact. It is merely a theory. It is it, you cannot reproduce it. And so evolution will never be a fact. It will never be a law because you cannot reproduce what occurred during evolution. And so both of these views are religious views, though that's not the way that it is communicated or portrayed in our schools today. Starting off in preschool and going through graduate school and every single class in between those two, our, our kids are taught and we are taught we are a product of evolution is a fact. Evolution is a fact, but it is merely a religious view of faith, just like creation is. And so... In the next few weeks, we're going to discuss some topics like this. How was the earth and the universe formed? Why is there suffering in our world if evolution is making things better and better? Why evolution will never be a proven fact or a law? Did humans live with dinosaurs? Did the universe's creator hide a message in the cosmos? What does creation say about climate change? How is this train ride going to end? <laughs> and next week's is, does any of this even matter? <laughs> does any of this creation and evolution stuff, does any of this debate even matter? Can't we all just get along? Do we have to pick? I mean, do, come on. Does it even matter? That's for next week. But today the topic isn't maybe what you would expect. Sometimes when we get to topics like this, ones where, they're, um, where we're passionate about them, where uh, there are two sides that are passionate about them, where we're sure that we know what the Bible says, and, and, um, and though that there are others that uh, blatantly reject the things that we accept about what we believe the Bible says about that. When we get to topics like this that are controversial, like creation and, and evolution, origins, sometimes it quickly devolves into a, a, a prove-it mode. I'm going to show you why I'm right and you're wrong. Let me give you five reasons why I'm right and you're wrong. Let me parse the Hebrew word, and then I'm going to show you why I'm right and 
you're wrong. And uh, inevitably, we're going to get to some of that stuff in this series, but it's easy to lose the, the forest through the trees. It's easy to, to lose the big picture when we're trying to prove our point. And I don't want to lose the big picture in spite of the little picture. And, and we can easily lose track of God's overall purpose in our world today as we're trying to convince somebody about creation versus evolution. And so that's where we're going to start today. We're going to start with six pivotal events in human history from the beginning to the ending of time. And we can in this see God's work in creation and God's work in humanity. If you nothing, know nothing else from the Bible, today is going to be kind of an overview of the Bible and the things that it teaches. Uh, if you remember what I teach you today, you are always going to know uh, where, where you stand, what has happened in the world before, what things are happening now, and what is still going to happen in the future. So let's start with the very first one, the first pivotal event in human history from the beginning to the ending is, of course, creation. You turned in your Bible, it's the book of Genesis chapter 1, I hope, that's page 1, not hard to find. Let's read it. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. This one verse, these ten words, provide more first-hand data on the creation of the word of the world than the complete works of Darwin himself. This tells us that God existed before the beginning, that he is eternal, that he transcends time, and he did a very unscientific thing. He exerted force upon nothing and made something. By the time we get to verse 5, we get to the first day. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning one day. That word day in Hebrew is the word yom, Y-O-M. And that word yom can be translated or could be understood as 24 hours or it could be understood as an extended period of time depending on the context. Let's get to day two in verse six. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let us separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so, and God called the expanse heaven. This is talking about the atmosphere. And there was evening and there was morning, a second day. That word day is the Hebrew word yom, Y-O-M. And sometimes it, it could be understood as a 24-hour time period, or it could be understood as an extended period of time just based on the context. Well, let's get to day two, or day three in verse nine. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. Then God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them, and it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good, and that it was evening, and there was morning, a third day. The word day there is the Hebrew word yom, and depending on context, it could be a 24-hour time period or it could be 
an extended period of time. But let's get to the fourth day, verse 14. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, that's the sun, and the lesser light to govern the night, that's the moon. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens and gave light to the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. The word day there is the Hebrew word yom, Y-O-M. It could be understood as 24-hour time period or an extended period of time based on the context. Verse 20, let's get to day five. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. And God created great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind. And every winged bird after its kind of God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the sea and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, a fifth day. The word day there is the Hebrew word yom, Y-O-M, that could be translated either a 24-hour time period or an extended period of time based on the context. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the bird of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created in his own image, in the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Skip to verse 31, just to round this out. Verse 31 of Genesis chapter 1. Then God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. That word day, you probably already understand now, is the Hebrew word for yom. And it could either be a 24-hour time period, or it could be be understood as an extended period of time. That word day there, that word yom, is not a, it's not a, a word in the Bible that's like unique in this passage. It's used over 2,000 times in the Old Testament. And every time that that word yom is used, it has evening and morning attached to it. It always refers to a 24-hour period day. It's over 100 times when it does that in the Old Testament. Whenever there's a number attached to that word yom, you know, like one day, uh, day two, day three, like a number that's attached to it in the Old Testament, it's always referring to one 24-hour period day. And so what we see here in Genesis chapter 1 is a completely supernatural, a non-reproducible, a non-scientific event. God did something non-scientific here, and he did a miracle. A miracle is not reproducible. A miracle cannot be um, placed in a jar and done over and over again to uh, confirm that it occurred that way. God did something complete, un completely unsciency in this week of creation. I see nothing here about life in other places. I do see that he created all the plants and animals to all live together. They're all eating uh, plants at this point in time. And so, yes, humans and dinosaurs lived together. Now, some Christians, as I do see six literal 24-hour days here in God's creation, some Christians say, well, you know, God uh, took a little bit longer. He took millions of years to uh, create the world instead. And we're going to get to that next week. 
But this is the first pivotal event in human history from the beginning to the end. Of course, you have to start somewhere, right? So creation is the very first one. The second pivotal event, the fall. The fall. You got to put your Apple iPhone with, with evil and sin, don't you? <laughs> Turn in Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. This is the first man, Adam, and really he's a representative of all mankind, of all humankind. And he fails God's simple test of love and obedience. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And the woman, that's Eve, said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Eve, I'm sorry he didn't say that, but let's keep going. Verse 4, The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband, that's Adam with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And the rest of that chapter is all about the destruction that came, the things that occurred, the things that broke as a result of the very first sin. Now, it's called not the very first sin, but it is called kind of theologically as the fall because this is where humanity falls from its sinless state. Did you know that Adam and Eve were created perfect? Uh, the, the, n no sin in them, no desire to do something wrong. I mean, you have the desire to, to hide something about yourself and lie. They didn't have that desire. There, there were no problems in the, in the Garden of Eden, no weeds in the Garden of Eden, no problems with lawnmowers in the Garden of Eden. Everything was absolutely perfect. No sin, no problems, no death. But then this is the fall, where the entire human race falls from perfectness into sin. And all of humanity falls along with Adam and Eve into the guilt of sin at this point in time. And so now there's indwelling sin. Now every single time a person is born, they have the desire to sin. It is living inside of you. Now, who, who taught you how to lie to your parents? Your parents didn't teach you to lie. It's because it was already built inside of you. It came from Genesis chapter 3. That's where it all started. But that wasn't it. That's where sickness came from. There was no sickness before. That's where COVID came from. God didn't invent COVID. It came from here in Genesis chapter 3. That, that's where every aspect of suffering that our world knows today comes from this event. I wrote in my notes here on the week that I was writing this that, um, that someone told me about a five-year-old who had inoperable brain cancer. Now, what in the world? I mean, what did that kid do to deserve that? Absolutely nothing. He didn't do anything wrong. He didn't sin, and then he got brain cancer. It is a result of living in a fallen, broken world. And the suffering gets so bad that it ends in death. Adam and Eve were never going to die had they not sinned. 
We know this from Romans chapter 5, verse 12, where it says this, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, who is the one man where sin entered? Who is that? That's Adam, right? Okay. And death through sin. Death entered the world through sin. And so death spread to all men, all humans, mankind, because all sinned. And not only is this, this, uh, this issue with individual humans, but nature itself was brought down to its knees. The ground was cursed, the elements were disturbed, the animal kingdom was wounded as a, as a result of what happened here in Genesis chapter 3. Romans 8 describes it like this, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, God, who subjected it. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now, and it still does today, all the way from Genesis chapter 3. And this provides a reasonable and spiritually satisfying explanation for the presence of evil and suffering in the world today. And even in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, it introduces a redeemer. It introduces the idea that there is going to be someone in the future that is going to rescue us from the very issue that occurs in Genesis chapter 3. By the way, dinosaurs are still living with humans at this point in time. And so the first two pivotal events, we have creation. And then very quickly after creation, we don't know exactly how long we have the fall. Humanity falls into sin. Not just two people, but all of humanity falls into sin. And so then we get to the next pivotal event in human history, and that is the flood. The flood. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 6. That's to the right, Genesis chapter 6. Just, just imagine, you know, all the descendants of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had kids, and they had kids, and they had kids, and they had kids, and they had kids. And they began to fill up the earth, as happens with populations, the population begins to grow. But now you have the sin that is unchecked. There, there is no limit to their sin. And so the world gets more and more and more wicked and evil. And so by the time we get to Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, we read this. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I mean, we're talking page six. <laughs> it happens that fast. That, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so you get to verse seven, where the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. God decides to judge the sin through a global flood that is going to destroy every single person, every single animal on the earth. Look at verse 12. In verse 12, it says, God looked at the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And so God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Speaking to Noah, verse 14, make, yourself, make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. 
You shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. And it goes on to describe the ark that he was to create. And the Bible tells us that anybody who chose to get on the ark, to enter the open door of the ark, that they were going to be saved from this watery catastrophe of the entire world being flooded. And this worldwide catastrophic event, of course, had an impact on the, on the entire earth, on the entire globe. And we see that with the thousands of feet of sedimentary rock all around the world. We see that with the billions of dead things within all of that rock ca- called fossils as a result of Genesis chapter 6. And the flood reminds people, even today, that that we have a, a righteous God that cannot tolerate sin. We have a holy God that will not tolerate sin. That, that very thing that occurred with Adam and Eve, not tolerable. There's judgment. And yet the ark tells us, the ark shows us, that he provides a way of salvation from sin's punishment. We have both. We have the dichotomy of both of these. We have a righteous and holy judge who cannot stand for sin, and yet he provides a way of salvation, a way out to this punishment of sin. And here we have the ark door open, and as Noah is building the ark, he is preaching every single day to the people who were around, get on the ark. Get on, there is a way to be saved from the flood. And you know what everybody did? (laughs) They all just laughed at him. What an idiot. What a goof. They just laughed at him. His family, his family believed him. His family got on the ark, but everybody else did not get on the ark. And the door was eventually shut. And what an amazing picture. Here we have in Genesis chapter 6, another picture of God's provision. Another, another picture of God's redemption. That there now is today Jesus Christ who offers a way of salvation from the punishment of sin still today. And here we say, put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the new ark. Jesus is the ark with the open door. And yet there is going to be a time when the opportunity to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ will end just like it was for those in Genesis chapter 6. By the way, there were dinosaurs on the ark. And you say, how in the world could you fit a dinosaur on the ark? Dinosaurs are so big. Yeah, big dinosaurs are big, but baby dinosaurs are baby, right? And so just because big ones are big, it doesn't mean that baby ones aren't baby. The average size of land animals, all averaged out, are about the size of a big dog. You can fit a lot of big dogs on the ark as we see the schematics of them in Genesis chapter 6. And so here we have the creation of it all, and not too long later, we have the fall of it all. It's created perfect, and yet man, represented by Adam, but the rest of us have sinned too, fell into sin. As a result, it, it ended in evil in the world so bad that God decided to destroy every single person on planet earth that did not take his way of salvation. But God promised that he would never destroy the earth like that again with the flood, and so he brought the rainbow. 
Now you can imagine as Noah and his family began to grow, they began to populate the earth again. And that brings us then, though, to the, the fourth pivotal event in human history, and that is the event of confusion. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. After the flood uh, ended and they got off the ark, God told humans to spread all around the globe. If this humanity thing is going to make a go of it, you've got to get all around the world. And so in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, we see God telling Noah just that. Then God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Well, the Bible tells us that they didn't do that. Turning your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. You know what they did is they liked being all together. I mean, they're just one big happy family. Hey, they're, they're all just they're one big happy family. They all come from Adam and Eve. Of course, then they get, it gets narrowed down again just to, to Noah and his wife. But they're all still one big happy family. They're all speaking one language. And so they say, hey, let's just... Let's just make a city here. It's good. We've got In-N-Out and Taco Bell and Del Taco. And, you know, it's just good here. Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Yeah, that's what God had told them to do. That's what needed to happen for humanity to survive on earth. But they were just so comfortable with their in and out. So verse 5, the Lord came down to see in and out and the rest of the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all have the same language and this is what they begun to do. Now, nothing which they propose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because the Lord confused the language of the whole earth and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Of course, you cannot thwart the plans of God. And so God says, okay, if you are not going to spread out around the world, then I'm going to make sure that it happens. And so at Babel, they were scattered by the changing of languages. Imagine what that would be like. You know, one day you just go to work and you think you're speaking the same language that you've always spoken, but your boss speaks back to you something you don't get. You don't understand it. He's trying to tell you what to do, and you're like, I don't even know what you're talking about. There's no Google Translate. What do you do? You can't go to work there anymore. Imagine that on a bigger scale. Your neighborhood speaks this language, but that neighborhood speaks that language. How do you have a 91 freeway with signs when everyone's speaking different languages? 
How do you do it? How do you order your in and out? If, if, this, if, if these people are taking the order, but these people are ordering. How, how does any of this work? It, it can't, it won't, it will not work in a culture, in a society. And so what naturally happened was what God wanted to originally happen. This, this group of people that spoke this language, they headed out in this direction. The, the group that spoke this language, they headed out in the opposite direction. And this group that spoke, spoke this language, they headed out in this direction. And since then, people have been filling the entire earth. And this is where extra biblical writings, like historical writings, kind of come into view here. And and, and this is where some things are confirmed outside of Scripture. By the time we get to Genesis chapter 11, some things are confirmed outside of Scripture. Um, according to ancient records, Egypt uh, started uh, somewhere in the early 2000 BCs. And that date fits with the biblical model of the ba- Babel dispersion that we see here in Genesis chapter 11. As a matter of fact, you know the Egyptian pyramids. You you understand some of the looks of them, that kind of like the look of of that that there. Well, that's what the Tower of Babel looked like because it was those same people that scattered out. And so it's these various groups that that left and and they started a, a new city. And these are the descendants of all the nations, of all the world that we have today. And so despite what we've been led to believe about how we have such seemingly large glaring differences in nationalities, we are all one race, we are all just a human race that descended from Adam and Eve, that came through Noah and his wife, we are all one race. And by the way, Dinosaurs are still around during this. But that's weird to think. One of the oldest books in the Bible is Job. And Job talks about hanging out with dinosaurs. And so you can start to see how, 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 how things are moving for humanity. God creates it perfect, and yet there's a fall, there's sin, and then God must judge the sin because of its evil, but he rescues people all along with it. God says we need humanity to spread out around the world, and he makes sure that it happens even if people didn't want to make it happen, and the world has been in a state of confusion spiritually for thousands of years until the fifth event until God sends his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to become what is known as the last Adam. Did you know that Jesus is called the last Adam or the second Adam? Check this out. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45. The backbone of the message of redemption is that there is a first Adam and that there is a last Adam, a second Adam. It says this in 1 Corinthians. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. Yeah, we know about that. We know when that happened. That was Genesis 1. We read it. Okay, The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Who is the last Adam? 
That is Jesus Christ. And so we have the, the, the first Adam, the former Adam, and he sold mankind into sin. He, he sold them into the peril of the results of their sin and, and destruction because of their sin. And yet, we have the last Adam, Jesus Christ, who gives life where Adam brought death. It says, continues here, however, the spiritual is not the first, but the natural, meaning Adam came first. Then Jesus Christ, the spiritual. The first man is from the earth. That's Adam, the earthly. The second man is from heaven. This is Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. God coming to earth in the flesh on Christmas Day, being born of a virgin, growing up, never sinning one time, never lying to his mom, never disobeying, never cheating on a test at school, never lying about why they were late to work, why he was late to work, nothing. He goes to the cross, he dies on the cross, not because of he's done anything wrong, he's dying on the cross for my sin, he's dying on the cross for your sin. That's, that's who he is. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthly, so also are those who are earthly. Meaning, if you're born on the earth, you're earthly. Have you been born? <laughs> Check your pulse, okay? If, if, you are, if you have a pulse today, you were born here on earth, and you are earthly. So also are those who are earthly. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have been born the image of the earthly, if you've been born on planet earth, you've been born of the earthly, it says we will also bear the image of the heavenly. When a person puts their faith, their trust, their, their, uh, their trust in Jesus' death on the cross, their sin is removed. That very thing that God, the righteous, holy, uh, perfect judge that he cannot tolerate, it is removed by Jesus' death. His blood washes it away. And when a person puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, their sin is removed. Imagine being a sinless person at, at the, the day of the flood. <laughs> a sinless person at the day of the flood. I don't know how God would have handled that. There, was, <laughs> there wasn't anybody like that. But imagine being sinless. You just like float above the water. <laughs> there is no destruction for you. There is no punishment because there's nothing to punish because you have no sin. Not because you didn't sin, but because Jesus Christ's death and his blood is what removed that sin with that faith. And so that's why we have verses like Romans 6.23, where it says the wages of sin is death. The first Adam brought death. He sold us into to slavery uh, of sin. And yet the free gift of God is eternal life in the second Adam, the final Adam, the one that came to pay our redemption, to pay the fine that nobody else could pay, to pay the fine that Adam couldn't pay. Of course, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, certainly could do that. And so now this is where we stand. Throughout the events of human history, we have had all these things happen in the past, and Jesus Christ has come, provided redemption to anybody who would put their faith and trust in Jesus. It's, to any, it's, not, to, it's, not, it's not only if you agree with me on evolution and creation. It's not only for those people who, who do goody-goody things. It's for anybody who changes their mind about Jesus. Do you believe that he is God, that he lived a perfect life, and he died on the cross for your sin, and that he did the impossible three days later, he rose from the grave because he's God? 
If so, anybody can experience this gift of grace. It is really a gift of grace just means getting something you don't deserve. We sang a song about that right before this sermon. And so we live, and now today, like theologically, um, you talk to you know, people who like to use big words, we live today in what's called the age of grace. But this age of grace, just like the, the open door of the ark, will not last forever. The, the open door of, of salvation in Jesus Christ does not go on into eternity there's another thing that occurs. And that is called the final completion of it all. Turn in your Bibles to the far backhand side of your Bible in, to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. Sorry, 2 Peter. It's even further. If you got to Timothy that fast, boom, you're good. 2 Peter chapter 3. I mean, it's way back. Wait, go back to Revelation and just flip back a few pages. You'll get to it. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. The Bible tells us the way that the world is going to end, that it is going to finally end. How, how is this train ride going to end? 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. This is how the train ride is going to end. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. And the earth and its works will be burnt up. The world is not going to be destroyed by water. We know that. It wasn't destroyed by water, but it is going to be destroyed by a cataclysmic uh, nuclear explosion the world has never known before. So intense that even the elements that make up the earth are destroyed. That's the way that this is going to end. Now, that doesn't sound like completion. That sounds like destruction. And it is. But for those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, there's still more to the story. That's only half the story. Moving your Bibles to the right even more to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21 it's not the last chapter of the Bible, but it's close. Those of you who put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you can look forward to a completion, to a fulfillment of all things in the future. Revelation 21, verse 1. Where the writer says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Yeah, we know how the first earth passed away through this giant cataclysmic nuclear <laughs> explosion ball of fire. That's how it all ended. But God creates a new heaven and a new earth, verse 4. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. The curse of Adam's fall is removed, and there is no longer any sin, no longer any cry, no longer any die, because he provides a brand new earth with a brand new atmosphere, and it will be on this new earth where 
Those of you who put your faith and trust in Jesus will live eternally with your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There are only two places where people are going to reside forever. One is in eternal destruction. Those people who have not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, those who have heard of the open door of the ark, those who have heard the, of the open door of Jesus Christ, God d- wants all to come to repentance. God wants none to perish, but all to come to repentance, but not everyone will, just like that there were people who laughed at Noah with the open door. There are people who laugh at Christians and the message of the gospel. And by this point in time, there is no more open door. And there's only two places where someone will, ride, will reside for all of eternity. One, in eternal destruction in hell. Or two, in this eternal, completed state. No more sin. No more cry. No more die. Isn't that interesting? Exactly like it was created at the beginning. What a... What a beautiful picture of God's overarching plan for the entire world. Now I get it, our, our series here is about the beginning and the end. And yet the very last words of Jesus in Revelation 22, just one chapter from where you are, look at verse 20. These are Jesus' very last words. Jesus says, yes. I'm coming quickly. I think the reason that he ends with that is because every person needs to know about all of this and they need to come to their own conclusion about the redemption that is found in Jesus Christ before it's too late. Now, why do we start with this? You know, we're talking creation and evolution. We're talking about the, the origins of the universe, the origins of, of life. Why do we start here with, with God's perspective of humanity and earth from the beginning to the end? Well, I want to show you a, um, uh, something that uh, Richard Bozarth wrote. He's, uh, he's a prolific writer. He's an atheist. Um, he's, uh, he's, in, uh, he's uh, into evolution. And he wrote in uh, the American Atheist magazine, I mean, this guy's prolific. He, he wrote 300 books and articles. He, he's written a lot. But this is what Richard Bozarth says about, um, about creation and evolution in an article that's entitled The Meaning of Evolution in um, the American Atheist magazine. This is what he says. Christianity has fought, still fights, and will continue to fight science to the desperate end over evolution because evolution destroys utterly and finally the very reason Jesus' earthly life was supposedly made necessary. Destroy Adam and Eve and the original sin and in the rubble you will find the sorry remains of the Son of God. If Jesus was not the Redeemer who died for sins, and this is what evolution means, then Christianity is nothing. This is why we start here. Now, my goal today is not to change your mind from evolution to creation. After all, you don't get saved, 
you don't, you don't go to heaven because you become a creationist. You go to heaven because you become a Christian. And so the reason that I laid out God's plan for the entire world is so that you know that there's a Redeemer for you. Whether you agree with me on the origins, that's secondary. I at least want you to know that there is a righteous God in heaven. He's a, he's a righteous judge. He's a perfect judge. He's a good judge. But, but, but a good judge won't allow evil, right? We want judges to be just. Well, God is a just God. He does not tolerate sin. And so that's why the Bible says the wages of sin is that the result of sin is death. And so if you've ever done something that you shouldn't do, thought something you shouldn't think, said something you shouldn't said, I want you to take these things to heart. The, the door of salvation is open in Jesus Christ. By putting your faith and trust in him, your sins can be washed away. But that opportunity will end at some point in time. So I want you to consider these things before God. So I'm going to ask you to do that. I'm going to ask, would you all be willing to bow your heads and close your eyes? Whether you know you're going to heaven or not, um, it just creates a little separation between you and the person next to you for just a minute. Uh, you know your uh, relationship with God, I suppose, but you don't know the person next to you. You don't know their heart. And so give them a chance to consider these things before God. If you'd like to put your faith in Jesus, you don't need to talk to me. You need to talk to God in heaven. That's called prayer. Maybe you're not sure what to say to God um, in prayer, and so I could help you. If you want to put your faith in Jesus, if you want your sins to be washed away, this is what you would say to God in the quietness of your own heart. He reads your mind. He knows your intentions. You can't, you don't have to, you can't, can't fake God out, but you don't have to convince him of something that, that is really true. He, he believes you. This is what you would say to him. You'd say, dear God, I know that I've sinned. I've done things I shouldn't have done, and I've thought things I shouldn't have thought. And I realize now that that separates me from you for all of eternity. And I realize that I need a Savior. And so I put my faith and my trust in this Jesus. I believe that Jesus is God. I believe that he came to earth. I believe that he was born of a virgin. I believe that he lived a perfect life. And I believe that he died on the cross for my sin. I even believe the impossible. I even believe that he rose from the grave. I put my faith and my trust in this Jesus. I put my eternity in the hands of this Jesus. With your head still bowed and your eyes still closed, the immediate promise is that, yeah, God promises to take your soul to heaven when you die. The Bible promises that he gives you the third person of the Trinity. And the third person of the Trinity that will come and live inside of you, he's the one that will kind of change your mind, change your actions, change your ways. You wonder how a Christian or why a Christian is different. It's not because of me browbeating them. It's because of God's Holy Spirit. And so now God's Holy Spirit will come and live inside of you too. will change you who you are. Well, God, we thank you for you, what you've provided for us here. We thank you for revealing these things to us. We would have no hope had it not been for your Bible telling us these things. And you didn't have to reveal these things to us, and yet you did. And so we praise you for it. That's why we sing of your grace today of giving, these, uh, giving us this uh, free gift of salvation that comes only through your son's redemption. We thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.